Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dead Pixel. And I'm here with my friend and colleague, Ryan Hullings. Hi. And uh, today we're sitting here chatting with Andrea Callis, who is the head of archives at Paramount Pictures. Hi, Andrea. Hi there. Andrea. Happy to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming along and doing this with us. Sure. You know, we 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 you're you're one of the people that we refer to as the people in the dark rooms. So uh, <laughs> you know, we don't we're, we don't get our glory most of the time. So hopefully, we're going to get out there. <laughs> so tell me um, tell me a little bit about when we first met. And I think you probably remember. We were in a transfer room in London. I can't remember right. the facility. It was like blue or blue post or something like that. And um, you came in, in to Soho. observe. Somewhere in Soho. You I came in to observe. You yeah. were working at the BFI. Now, here's my question for you. Do you remember what movie it was? No, I don't. Mm. So I narrowed it down it, to four. A, what do you think? What do you think it is? Was it, it wasn't a Michael Powell movie, was it? Was it Michael Powell It could have been. It could have been. So I have, if it, I looked at my my uh, my emails from around that time. I have Green for Danger, Canterbury Tale, Man of Photo Earth, or The Third Man. I think it's Canterbury Tale. I, I think did that's too. And do you remember right. what happened? No. Something happened. What happened? The film broke what when happened? it was on the, it was on the telecine machine. Oh, and wow. I was so mortified. Oh I was God. like, oh I, I my block God. Out, I block out those Thank things you. when really bad things happen. <laughs> I do. I mean, they've only happened to me a handful of times. And, um, you know, I, I have actually, I try to erase them from memory. But yes, that's right. It was a tense moment. The film broke. All coming back to me. It's flooding back to me now like a horrible dream. <laughs> I think it was only during the leader, but still we were mortified. And yeah. Uh, I remember thinking, what a day. I can't believe this happened. And really, then years later, you know, I don't think we ever talked about it, but I remembered it when I was thinking about the uh, what movie it was. So uh, hopefully that movie's safe and sound and archived well and in 4K and all the things it needs to be now. Yeah, I'm not no, sure, I mean, but. it was such a great experience working at the BFI. I mean, working in such an amazingly large collection and of such a varied collection just a fascinating experience. I mean, one of the things, interestingly, about the BFI was, you know, that uh, London was the hub for all, um, you know, sort of European theatrical film distribution. And uh, during, especially during World War II, when nitrate became super scary to have in downtown London, BFI actually became the repository for all these labs that just had to get rid of nitrate, just had to get, you know, get mm. it out. And um, so there's just sort of, there's tons of, dupe um copies of a, a ton of american films um still to this day we work closely with the bfi when we're preserving um our republic film collection which is in paramount's collection um and use elements from them all the time but 
In addition, they had, you know, I got to work on a lot of the early David Lean films, which was such a treat. Oh, my God, that sort of time yeah, in British film cool. history was amazing. And and then really great, great, wonderful stuff like the National Coal Board Collection, you know, when the British government actually funded the production of documentaries about coal and the coal industry, but actually hired some documentary filmmakers that went on to greatness. So uh, fascinating, you know. So they're beautifully so, made documentaries. Yeah, yeah. About I mean, some coal. of them are pretty bog, bog, very standard, but some of them are really, yeah, beautifully shot and composed. And so, you know, just a incredible experience working with such a wide, you know, and like everybody right now too, I'm, I'm, I'm watching The Crown, right? And I remember, and Prince Charles was actually the BFI's, you know, um, what do they call it? The... the royal sponsor or whatever it was and um the bfi actually has home movies of the royal family um and so when he came to visit once we showed him some of the home movies and they're pretty you know it's just sort of people outside and some of them were from i think this one was from the 30s um so shot on 35 um you know of you know and basically it was them outside and um this car drives up, this incredible car I've never ever seen ever in the universe. Um, and, and Prince Charles said, I believe we still have that car. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Which was just a wonderful moment. Um, so, yeah, just great experiences. Incredible, incredible colleagues there, too. Amazingly smart, um, interesting people who have had great experience. Um, you know, working either in, um, you know, like, for example, a lot of the, there was a ton of television and there were all these ex-BBC engineers that had sort of a second career mm-hmm. making sure all the quad machines were working, you know, <laughs> brilliant engineers I got to meet and talk to or, um, you know, or people that had worked in film labs in the UK over the years and had all this incredible experience with, you know, traditional timing and figuring out how to build a printer and Mm. um so you know and then great people who really had an incredible knowledge of the history of british film too um so uh, such such a wonderful experience such a great place to i I, know i mean i i wish that i could work there for a little while i've gotten tours of it and i'm always amazed that the thing i'm really amazed about is every road that I can't figure out where to find something, where I can't find a copy of something, it ends up at the BFI. They've got a copy of Double Indemnity. They've got a copy, and they're good copies. They're not just mm-hmm. crappy copies. So mm-hmm. the the amount of valuable stuff there is huge for American cinema, and no one realizes that. Yeah, they've saved me on the sound front on multiple occasions where mm-hmm. we've been unable to find an element, you know, of any kind for something, you know, and uh, they've been like, oh, yes, of course we have this. You know, it's remarkable, the breadth of the collection. Yeah. It's really interesting. It, it plays such a big role in the history of film preservation, too. Um, you know, uh, I mean, they're in the, you know, 60s to 70s, the BFI um, really started the sort of mass migration of nitrate stock to acetate stock. Um and it's it's a fascinating moment, right? Because it was it was that sort of nitrate won't wait era, 
you know, and you had to get it because it was just going to go away. It was going to disappear, explode or both, you know, mm. and the only thing you could do was copy it to acetate stock and do it as quickly as possible. And they basically had sort of like a factory, like sort of, you know, line of things to do. And um, and the standard at that point, too, was once you copy the nitrate, you you destroy it. Um, oh. And many and many European archives followed this. And that was actually written in the nitrate standard, the film handling standard was copy it and destroy that. Film. Was that short-lived? Um, I mean, it... Because I, I still find a lot of nitrate there. No, no, no. So, you know, what, that thing, most archivists, I mean, it, doesn't, it didn't happen to every archive, but most archivists didn't have the heart to actually throw the stuff out. Ah, uh, that's amazing. Um, so what happened at the BFI was um, uh, they stored it, but they sort of put it in, in sort of, you know... Uh, in, in people in places where people wouldn't find it so easily. So there Next was a furnace. Ex, ex, um, in, in the middle of, of England on this big site, there was this, it was an actually an XMOD site where they actually literally used to store nuclear warheads. And then the BFI got it to store some of their nitrate there while they were copying it. But there were also these disused um, former um, missile silos, <laughs> literally warehouses where people would put the nitrate after they copied it because they couldn't bear to throw it away. Wow, I um, love that. So when I got there, I went and I went and I saw it, and it was it was immediately heartbreaking because these were not great facilities. They were, you know, it's not exactly a dry country, right? So there was tons of damp, tons of mold, nitrate starting to deteriorate. So that was our big big project was to actually you know turn that around and make sure the world's largest nitrate collection actually got stored well because those were the originals. Yeah. And, you know, and the copies that they made on acetate that they still had were made really quickly and not always with, you know, great care because they just had they just basically had to get through it. Um, so we did. That was one of the biggest achievements we had when I when we were there. We had, you know, we built this sub-zero vault where both nitrate and acetate originals are stored together fascinatingly in the same vault. And wow. the way they constructed it was a nitrate is around the edge of the vault and the acetate is in the inside. Oh, um, I see. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, so, but, and that's, you know, this transition of just copying everything constantly to more, let's, let's make sure we keep that original as best as we can for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting part in the history of preservation that I was lucky enough to be a part of. Have you ever seen a nitrate uh, or have you ever seen a comparison of nitrate on fire versus acetate on fire? Oh, yeah. It's pretty yeah. unbelievable how much more flammable it is. Lee and I were presenting in, uh, at this uh, film school workshop in India, and uh, we actually brought some nitrate, like just, you know, a handful of frames yeah. um, with us on the plane. Um, to Because we were talking about the Apu trilogy, which famously yep. burned. Yep. And, I was there um, for that. Oh, Wow. Um, <laughs> I think I saw you burn the nitrate, but I was in India at the, at the same time you guys were presenting that. I think we didn't overlap on every one of them because you were there for three days, we were there for three days, something I saw, like that. I, yeah, I saw you like for five minutes at the theater, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, we tried to, you know, we were talking to all the students and everything, and uh, we were like, all right, now after talking about this film burning, we've got some actual nitrate. We're going to take it outside and burn it. And it was so hard to get it to really burn. I mean, it eventually burned, but it was like, 
not it didn't go up it didn't like, light. like yeah. gasoline like I expected it to, yeah. you know? It kind of went up slowly and we had to light it a few times. We're like, no, seriously, it's super flammable. <laughs> and finally it did. It was faster than the acetate though, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. We so. when I worked at UCLA Film and TV Archive, um, the famous Bob Git, you know, when he would give presentations about what he was doing, he would take um a piece of nitrate leader or something like that and set it on fire. Um, and he would do that in front of cameras, like, you know, for news shows or things like that <laughs> until the day that you still like film and TV archives started getting really weird phone calls from like, you know, firebugs or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then we decided no more burning nitrate on camera. Um, yeah. But when I was at UCLA, my first job as a student worker, a, a job they would never give a student worker today was actually inspecting nitrate. To, so I would take a can off a shelf, open it up, look inside and rate it one to five to see, you know, based on various things, you know, was it was it starting to be sticky? Was there dust? Things like that. Yeah. Um, but one day I was in there um, and I, I pulled and it was in one of those kind of uh, shelves that have little clips on the top and bottom. So I had to it's old rusty can and so that created some friction of the film across the bottom of the can it started to get warm wow and i dropped it and ran <laughs> as i had been taught wow. and uh it did not ignite okay but um i have only respect for the flammability of a nitrate film now speaking of nitrate that we've we've all had the privilege of actually scanning some nitrate and looking at the beauty of it. And it really is phenomenal, the image that, if it's stored well and original and didn't shrink and all the things that make something not good are, are, are eliminated, it's fantastic. And it's it's like opening a fine wine where you, it's an old wine, you're not sure how it's gonna be and you look and you go, wow, this is amazing. We saw that with Mildred Pierce and it just blew us away. I think also, like, you know, um, when we look at nitrate prints, I always think we have to remember that's when the labs were on their game. You know, they were doing, you know, millions of feet of color timing and printing. And that, I mean, they were just at the height of their expertise and abilities. And you, so you see these prints and they look beautiful because that was when people really knew how to make prints. Yeah. Um, you know, later on, I think, you know, there, there, there still are, are people that know how to do that in the labs, but when you're just the sheer volume of movies, when, you know, like half the country is going to the movie twice a week, just, you know, right. that, that kind of volume just means there's another level of expertise of people making beautiful, um, technicolor prints or beautiful black and white prints because they've just done it so much and you get that. That's what I think, you know, adds to seeing the nitrate print is that moment in time and that expertise was never better. Yeah. And if if you've been in Bologna during the nitrate picture show where they show the uh, some nitrate movies outside, it's really pretty special to, to actually watch that in the projector and everybody's standing around. And uh, I know Eastman uh, in Rochester did at the Eastman House, they do it, too. Um, I don't know in L.A. if they do it. I I have not heard of it in LA. Have you? Yeah, the um, well, the Egyptian's about to get renovated because um, it was bought by Netflix. But it did have the Film Foundation actually helped put a, a nitrate booth into the uh, Egyptian on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, but I, I think it'll probably stay there. 
Um, and they have done, and especially around TCM festival, they've done a couple of nitrates. Right. right. And I think um, people should rush to see that if they can, cause it's special. I try to keep that in mind, just the expertise of, you know, people really working with, um, the, the, the presentation of a movie, you know, when I'm working on a restoration, like, um, try to keep the, you know, the knowledge and the expertise dealing with each movie as close to me as I possibly can, whether it's, you know, talking to people who still be maybe around or, um, or doing research on cinematographers or, you know, um, like when we worked on sunset Boulevard and we did research on, uh, on the cinematographer and he was really fascinated with how little light a film stock could capture so much so that he actually took a, a strip of, of negative out into the desert and just left it overnight and then exposed it and just to see what, what it actually captured when there was practically in a moonless night. Mm. Oh. Um, and that was great instruction because um, Sunset Boulevard does use darkness so much to tell the story, mm. you know, um, when he first goes to the mansion and it's bright sunshine outside. And then as he goes in and he, and he, you know, he meets Corey Swanson, the, the darkness just starts to come in. So yeah. much so that by the end of that scene, they have to turn on a light <laughs> because it's so dark. Yeah, I love that. Um, so, you know, I kind of just like thinking about what they, what people were thinking to try to make that story yeah. technically. Yeah. It's one of, the best, yeah. one of the best parts about restoration to try and keep those people around you somehow yeah. keep that expertise around you all the time when you're, when you're working. I mean, you have to do your research and you have to now with, with a movie of that age, there's really no one to talk to. Um, so you have to nope. read, but there's, there's a lot you can find from people's notes or cinematographers styles or what directors were trying to do. Or I always look at the cinematographers surrounding films too, like, cause they made a lot. If you think about 1930s and forties, cinematographer may have shot five or six films or maybe even more in one year, but you can learn a lot about when they went to scope and when they went to one eight five and when they, mm -hmm. you know, all those things that will, will help you. So uh, IMDB is a pretty valuable tool in itself. But uh, there, you know, you're in an archive, so you have access to lots of notes, I assume. I mean, we, um, a lot of the production notes are actually at the Academy. Um, so we, we, and the Academy's a great resource too. The Margaret Herrick Library is fantastic, you know. So that's unfortunately closed right now, but, you know, when it reopens, that's where we spend some time just sort of crawling through whatever we can. can. And we, we look for, yeah, sometimes it's uh, personal correspondence of something, somebody related to the film that might be referring to it. Could be trade and trade journals or other things like that that can have some bits and pieces that will be useful. Um, so yeah, looking for anything and everything we can uh, about a, a film when we're restoring it is um, is helpful. Yeah, and then when people are alive, it's 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 wonderful to have their collaboration. As you know, you've worked with directors and cinematographers too. Having that direct contact and people talking to you about the film and their experience, even if they're talking about how the production was made and it may not have to do even remotely with the actual color decisions you're making in a particular scene, just hearing their experience and hearing about what was going on when they were making it and the stories they tell about it, I think helps you really make that Absolutely. film, you know, work so much. Yeah. Um, we just worked with on one of your films, uh, the parallax view. And mm -hmm. we're lucky enough to have uh, John Borston, 
who was the mm-hmm. color timer who worked with uh, Gordon Willis. And um, we, it was, it was great because we had two things that were good. We had one, we had the transfer that you did with that Gordon approved, you know, 15, right. 20 years ago. And then we had John to really give us more information on it. And for instance, like the scene at the end in the auditorium, uh, you know, he kept thinking about, it. he said, you know, I just feel like we need to make this colder. Cause when Gordy went in there, he wasn't expecting to light it the way it was. He didn't, he left, there was nobody in the room and he loved the way the cold fluorescence looked on it. And he said, you know, I feel like the prints were always too warm, but Gordy always wanted it uh, cooler. So we should let that, that room be fluorescent. That was invaluable. You know, that, that piece of information. Um, yeah. But he's one that I, you, you don't want to mess with too. You want to get it right because. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's Gordy. No, no. <laughs> yeah. And even uh, when I worked on Clute, I brought Michael Chapman in because he was the assistant cameraman. And um, when I asked him, I said, do you, would you mind coming in and taking a look? And he said, anything for Gordy. Anything. So now I feel like I can call him Gordy, too, even though I never met him. But <laughs> hopefully that's okay. So Yeah. Pretty <laughs> universally respected. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, uh, so tell me about Wings, because that was one, one of the things that we, I thought would be interesting to talk about uh, since it was such a big restoration for you guys. And of course, the first Best Picture winner, 19, what was it? Um, 27. So uh, yeah, so it was the 100th anniversary of Paramount coming up. Um, so and we count the anniversary of Paramount as, um, or the, the sort of day one of Paramount as being 1912. Uh, because that was when um, Adolf Zucker bought the rights to uh, Queen Elizabeth, which was a film that was uh, starred uh, Sarah Bernhardt, and had and he had this crazy idea that if people had heard of somebody that was in a film, they might come to it a little bit more. <laughs> crazy, um, I know, kind of panned up, <laughs> uh, and it it played in Manhattan for I think like six months solid and, and made a ton of money and really started, started the company for, for, for Zucker. So that was, um, that's our anniversary. So in, we were leading up to, to 2012 and um, really realized that, uh, you know, although there'd been some work on wings over the years, you know, with Kevin Brownlow working on wings and the Academy did some work on wings over well, we were really at a point where, um, we could take what just what existed of the film, which was all we had was a um, a dupe from a print that had nitrate deterioration printed in. And that was it. That was the that was the best we had. And we did everything to find better. So we couldn't find anything. Fifth better. generation or third generation? Yeah, fourth or fifth. Um, and but we knew that the the uh, sort of the tools for digital restoration were then really mature enough to handle that massive amount of nitrate deterioration so that we could, because literally it was like the image was like this on the sides, you know, with nitrate deterioration. And to try to smooth that out and make that a full picture was really our goal. So um, that was that was definitely an impetus. It had never been on Blu-ray before either, so that was another. And because it was the um, 100th anniversary, we really started to research um, what the experience was like for people who saw the movie for the first time. And it was a blockbuster when it came out. I mean, it it stayed and, you know, played in various theaters in the big cities for, you know, more than a year. 
uh, with a full roadshow kind of presentation where they had the full orchestra, they had sound effects. Awesome. They even had um, uh, sort of a magnifier on on the projector that would take the, make the image go bigger at various times, oh. like almost early IMAX. <laughs> so they would just pop out um, in some of the big battle scenes and sort of take over the proscenium. Uh, so we knew it was a really big deal. And, and, you know, just sort of thinking about that time too, where, you know, people hadn't seen a lot of aviation. They'd heard about, you know, and they'd also heard about this thing called World War One, and maybe they'd seen a couple of newsreels, they'd seen things in newspapers, but, you know, this is not the 24-hour news cycle, right? People had heard a lot about it, but actually seeing this stuff, um, no wonder it was so incredibly popular. And, um and William Wellman, who directed it, you know, he had actually flown himself and just loved the opportunity as they actually got some planes that were, you know, before they were destroyed from the U.S. Army, right before the Air Force. Actually, Wings helped create the Air Force, but um, that were parked in Texas. Um, so available for <laughs> use for making this huge World War One movie. And, you know, I mean, never before... And never since did there were there actually actors who flew planes <laughs> with cameras <laughs> in front of them yeah. as yeah. part of, you know, uh, so, you know, it's everything about it, you know, just wanted to make sure it, it, you know, it really was a really, really big movie when it came out. And we, you know, to celebrate the anniversary and to pay tribute to the movie, we wanted to make it big again. So the picture restoration was important, but we also really wanted to focus on, um, the sound as well, because there was a, a score that was created. It was distributed to all the theaters for them to follow. Some of it was original music. Some of it was popular music, which was, you know, very standard for silent. Um, but we also knew that there had been all these sound effects in the roadshow performances, you know, like planes and guns and all sorts of action-y kind of sound effects. So that's when we got Ben Burt involved, uh, and Ben Burt, you know, famously the sound designer for, you know, oh, Star Wars and other big things, um, is also when he was, I think, 12 or 13 years old, made his own version of Wings with his 8mm no camera. So kind of a fan. <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, and also Ben, because he's an archivist in his own right, has collected over the years the most amazing sound effects library that exists, um, you know, and... So he had sounds in those libraries that were actually authentic uh, plane sounds from World War One. You know, this, this That's is when, so cool. You know, so so his, you know, he we we recorded the music with a MIDI track, and then we got some extra, like we got some violins and some horns, and sort of mixed that together. Some nice piano for just different places. So we we did the music part of it, and then we sort of gave that to Ben and said, okay add the effects and make this a five, one mix, please. And I will never forget the first time, you know, I got to experience it. And it's in the, in the very beginning of the film, um, you know, wings, you see this plane come up on the screen um, with the wings, you know, on either side of it. And then wings comes out and Ben just had this huge virtuoso <laughs> and sound effect coming up. Like, like we're in the movie now. <laughs> and, and I was like, yes, this is great. This is 
this is as big as the movie should be. That's you so know? Cool. And, yeah. you know, he goes, you know, I realized I wasn't doing this to a silent movie. I was doing this for, for a war movie. This is a war movie. You know, like he, like he took that mental and that's such a great thing to say, right? Because saying silent about a movie is so limiting in a lot of ways because silence have so much going on. So incredible, so much artistry, so much ability. So it was wonderful to have uh, Ben along. And then the, the picture itself, it was just, you know, painstaking frame by frame by frame, working with special effects artists who were taking very carefully out all the, the different artifacts from the nitrate deterioration and bringing it back as much as we could. I mean, we didn't have an original negative, sadly, yeah. you know, it's never going to be, we're never going to have that source to make it stunning, but we could recreate the tints and make it look, you know, as great as we possibly could. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really satisfying restoration. It was also a big part of a celebration of Paramount and, um, you know, I, I, and I love the movie. I don't ever stop loving that movie. Um, I never, there's a moment near the end where I always tear up, you know, I like it emotionally. It just, it's, it's such a great, it's a great, great film. And so it was, it was sad, so satisfying to restore and so satisfying to be a part of. Yeah, it's great. I mean, there's just these, these movies that I, I mean, you, you work at a, a studio that has put out some unbelievably amazing movies and you're right there with them right now. Do you ever get that pinch me effect sometimes when you're working on something that, you know, you feel honored to be working on or privileged or I don't even know what the word is. I don't know. I get goosebumps when I, when I touched a original negative of a Chaplin film once and, uh, you know, I just touched it. I, I didn't even <laughs> work with it. I just touched it and I felt goosebumps. Yeah, if I ever forget, I, I work with such incredible colleagues in the archive who continue to have that feeling of, oh my God, look what we found. Um, I mean, we're working on, we're working on The Godfathers right now, as you know. Um, the anniversary of the first one is 2022, so we're um, uh, the third one has just been recut and re-edited by uh, Mr. Coppola, and that's coming out um, a little later this month, and then we'll package them all up. Uh, for release in 2022. So in the meantime, we're working on one and two. And, you know, one um, is, is very common for popular films. Um, what would happen is people would use the original negative just like any negative for printing. And, you know, when you, if something got scratched in the printer, oh, that's no problem. You just cut it out and you put a dupe section in, right? Um, and so pieces of the original negative and, you know, this happens all the time in the, you know, in the history of film when people were doing regular printing. So, you know, I don't want to, you know, cast. But they weren't thinking about 4K oh, at the time. Or, oh, so. <laughs> yeah, they weren't. Right. right? Yeah. And it, it, right. And exactly. And it would print up and it would look fine because um, you had other generations to sort of mask that difference. But now, yeah, right. We're scanning um, at 16 bit and 4K. And so. We, um, during the pandemic, actually, we had uh, it, things slowed down a little bit, but it gave us a chance to actually dig through a lot of trim boxes from one. And we have actually found a lot of the things that were cut out. Wow. Uh, some of the original neck pieces. Wow, that's and great. That's amazing. It's, you know, to me, that's like the biggest thrill, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. That's, that's that feeling you're talking about. Yes. Like, yes, we found it. 
Yeah. Um, the archive juju works. We can find stuff. We can put it back. <laughs> um, you know, so and we can make it better. That's that's that feeling. So, uh, yeah, that's what we live for is trying to make sure we're making these great things as great as they can be all the time. Um, so yeah, my colleague um, Jeff Osmer, who's really he's he's the guy who just crawls through these editorial boxes like nobody's business. And um, I relaxed all archival rules during the pandemic and he turned his garage into uh, like, you know, he had a set of rewinds, he had the boxes. I was like, fine, go for it. You know, um, because, because he could find this stuff and he's just brilliant at it. And heck, it's the uh, Godfather too. I mean, you're, you know, it's not only the Godfather, it's the Godfather of, of all crime movies it's it's the it's the crime movie isn't it yeah i mean everything about it we're treating you know and everybody that's working on it too feels that the weight of responsibility and the weight of you know how important this is um you know uh actually our colleague laura thornberg who was with paramount for years who retired um i'm i'm she's been brought out of retirement to oversee this restoration one more job yeah, <laughs> I needed. Well, I needed her eyes. Her eyes are some of the best eyes in the business, you know. And, and her memories, and her yeah, and her familiarity with the library and her familiarity with the Godfather Project. Yeah, those are in, invaluable for this kinds of things where you you can't mess up. Everything has to be right. Yeah. Um. And so she's been great, but we've also had other people that were working on the team overseeing some of these things, and and of course working with with Zoetrope and, and, and Mr. Coppola too. The pandemic has kind of helped that a little bit because everybody's around it's and true. traveling all yeah. over the world. Yeah, access to the filmmakers is so, easier right now. Access to you know, film is I, harder though. Access to film is harder, yes. <laughs> a little harder, but we've been, you know, for this one, we, we, we've been lucky at the Paramount. You know, we've been able to keep a skeleton crew going in the archive the whole time, you know, making sure everybody's safe, of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's it's been a challenge, but there's been some some odd side benefits to it too. That's yeah. made it uh, given us ability to just focus as much as possible on this. So it's a thrill. Yeah. Um, but yes, that feeling of uh, that archive feeling of uh, this is this is something really important, and we're part of it. Um, I think everybody that I work with feels that way, and I'm so happy about that because it makes me happy when they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know I was, I remember walking through uh, my office where there were guys, a bunch of guys doing uh, digital restoration on, on a movie and they all looked so happy and it was, uh, it was Days of Heaven at the time and they were just all like thrilled to be working on it. You could just tell every film geek back there, they just lit up. This is the, this is the one I've been waiting for. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and they're happy. We're, we're happy too. So it's the same, it goes, it's, it's the same at every archive restoration facility. Take care of your take care of your guys, right? I mean, we're lucky in the um, different studios have it different different ways. Uh, but at Paramount, like all the archives are together, right? So we have stills, music, costume props, the film, um, everything's in one place, and that's a great benefit because all people have to do is walk down the hall and say, "Hey, I'm working on this thing." Um, you know, uh, oh, you know what? I've got some stills from behind the scenes on that. Let's take a look at them. That might help you figure this thing out. You know, um, like uh, we were working on uh, Demille Sampson and Delilah, and we noticed in one of the scenes there was just this shimmer, shimmer in the 
and we didn't know what it was. You know, was it an artifact of digitization? What was the shimmer going on? And then we found some behind the scenes photos and it was like, okay, so it was Technicolor and the lights were crazy hot. They were huge lights for Technicolor on the stage and they were so strong they were actually creating a little bit of a heat shimmer. Whoa. You know, that's what we actually figured out was going on. So we left it in. Yeah. When it, it was not an artifact, it was actually part of the photography of that. So, but that's that's the great thing about having your colleagues all there where you can, okay, let's try to figure this out. Why is this going on? We need to, you know, and having everybody there is really, it's wonderful. Yeah, but I'm missing that right now. I'm missing walking down the hall and seeing what everyone's working on and talking to them about it. It's the water cooler conversation is definitely reduced. I know there's some people that are saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy to work from home forever. This is fine with me. I'm not one of them. Oh, I, think, I totally am. <laughs> I totally am. But to be fair, I, you know, worked in a soundproof room, you know, that I literally couldn't hear the fire alarm when it went off in there um, with no windows. And so I was pretty isolated even when we were in the office. Yeah. So this isn't that That's much fair. of a change for me. I just don't have sense. to commute now. I love it. Well, we'll see how you are, too, in six months if you're still feeling the same way. Angie and I will be ready to get back to the real yeah, thing. I and, mean, yeah, I think for me, it's, it's the archive staff I work with. I really like them. They're great. Yeah, I miss, my, I miss my coworkers for sure. And every conversation is an interesting one. And so when we bump into each other, there's something new. Somebody's discovered and it turns into another oh wow what about this and that you know that's i mean you it's hard to manufacture that on zoom yeah yeah for sure those are the kinds of accidental conversations that you know but i do i'll you know some some request or query will come in and i'll get on the phone and, and talk to somebody i think will know something more about it and then we'll end up talking about all sorts of other stuff so we you know it still exists but um it's uh it's a really tight um and well-tuned, you know, well, the, the group gets along really well together and likes to help each other out a lot. So it's really nice. How big is the group there? Like ballpark? So I, um, so that I oversee two groups that have joined. So one was used to be called mastering one used to be called archives and together we're now asset management, but, um, so, and that's, that's around 60 people. Okay. Um, so there's people that are, you know, dealing off, some of them are dealing with localization of our titles. Some of them are dealing with, um, music restoration some are dealing with film restoration or preservation stills um or episodic programs new titles coming into the you know to be distributed for home media so a variety of different things around making sure we've got all the stuff that's needed for the studio to then distribute how is it with 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 budgets do you feel like you're you're given the because you have a big archive to take care of which means a lot of migration of just film data do you, is it a constant struggle for you or do you feel like the studio is pretty good about it? Or is it, is it like every studio where it's tough? I mean, look, uh, I, I have a phrase, everybody loves an archive until they have to pay for it, you know, <laughs> and you have to be an advocate if you're going to go into this profession, you know, and that's one of the, like the little lectures I give when I go into um, library science school or archive school and they want me to talk. I talk about the necessary skill of advocacy and making that skill very, you know, and really understanding what that means so that you are building your archive. Your archive is never its own thing. An archive always serves somebody else, right? It can serve, you know, um, a university. It can serve a studio. So it, it's a mistake to think that you're special and important in and of yourself. You have to be an advocate to say, this is why we are doing this. 
We are doing this for you. It's not our archive. We're just taking care of it for you. And how do you make sure that you're doing that? I'm also incredibly fortunate at Paramount because there are people, um, Randy Bomberger, who heads a studio group, who really understands what archives means. And then my boss, Tony Garino, who did an amazingly brilliant job 10 years ago of building out sort of a long-term strategy so we could actually put it in place how we were going to manage costs over a long period of time to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that continues. So I, I feel really fortunate yeah, that's that great. I had those kind that kind of executive support, but I'll take a little credit too. I think my own skill of saying, you know, making sure that we articulated why these different things were important. Why was it important to build a cold vault? Why was it important to have an ongoing preservation program? Why did, you know, why were we going to make sure to scan things instead of put them on film? That was a long conversation. And, you know, it ended up really, you know, and it it was a difficult one because that was, you know, 10 years ago when people were like, well, film is the only way to preserve. And we ended up saying, look, we've got to make that choice because our, our main goal is to support the studio who needs things digitally. We'll put in a digital preservation program to make sure those pixels don't die. Um, but we will, you know, but we will scan at the highest resolution. And in fact, this last year, from March till about a month ago, when we last did run, ran the numbers, 52 of the films we preserved were, were used for the first time for ongoing distribution. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's really satisfying to know that, that those kinds of decisions are are working. So that's the advocacy part of it, right? Why you're doing what you're doing, you know, you're doing it for your greater organization and how do you articulate it well? Yeah, that's your, it's good that you have people you work for that actually give you that freedom and care about it enough to give you some, I mean, I feel very lucky about that. It's a criterion with, with Peter and Jonathan, they are both very, when I say we need to do this in 4k, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a I have, to, I have to really make my case, but you know, I want to leave the movie in as good a shape as I can leave it in when when I'm done with it. And I think that's what all archivists really want to do. We want to we want to preserve things the best way we can do it. It's uh, making your company proud they have you. You know, I and I I hope I do every day. I hope I do with this podcast. I hope I do in everything because I am proud to be a part of Paramount Pictures. It's an amazing place to be. I am proud of the work everybody has done to make sure that and articulating that, I think, in a way that shows that the studio cares about its own legacy and its heritage um, is important. I mean, I, I hope that continues to be. It's it's difficult to to, you know, I've seen other other studios where those things are they're, they're sort of holding on really tight right now. Yeah. It's an interesting moment in our history where we're looking at, um, you know, uh, digital preservation versus photochemical preservation coming in, looking at how studios are changing when they are having their own streaming services rather than um, selling to other people's, although everybody's doing both. Um, but you know, that transition and how a studio archive fits in there, it's very much front of my mind right now. Um, and really it's not about the archivists, it's about the films, making sure that they're, they're cared for and, you know, trying to figure out how we can do that is always important to me. I mean, the, the, the next question really is how are people going to be watching movies soon? So we don't, we don't know how that's going to change. And that's, 
something we gotta keep an eye on right now too. I mean, we are we we're making DCPs now, and I don't know whether any where, yeah, where why are going. we making DCPs? I don't <laughs> we know. are too. We are too. <laughs> um, I just uh, yeah, we just yeah, we, we make we continue to make them too. We absolutely believe they're going to be used. I no hope they're used. I yeah. want to sit in a theater absolutely. in a dark room with my phone off and watch a movie again. I'm ready. We got to go into the Academy to take a look at some of the Academy's prints on Godfather and Godfather 2. And there were you know, maybe 10 of us in the theater. And all of us, we were just so happy to <laughs> watch a movie. And, you know, and uh, watching those movies was great. But, um, you know, watching a movie at all. Yeah. Was really- yeah. Mike Pogo um, told us the same thing about how great it was just to go. Oh, in- yeah. He was there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he didn't mention that one by name, but I maybe he was afraid. But uh, uh, he did say it was great to be back in the theater. It's always great to get. I mean, that's another great thing about archives and archive work is we, we it's, it's required that we work together well. It's required that we collaborate. Yeah. Super we can't, important. We can't be enemies. We have to be friends. And that's a really nice thing about archives is that collaboration actually helps everyone all the time. So it's always a strong thing to do. Yeah, I but yeah, I, I, I think... Um, Theaters, I, 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 they'll be around. That's what I'm saying. Um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. No, I, I agree. I think so, too. Yeah. So we'll see each other in the theater soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few more months. Yeah. Well, uh, this was, was just super fun. Um, you know, I could talk to you about the archive forever. I, 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 I think everybody should go to an archive and just see walls and walls of film cans because it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing to see. Um, and inside those cans are just treasures of things. And it's different from looking at a box of hard drives. <laughs> yeah, certainly. It's true. I think that's, that's one of the difficult things with digital preservation is, you know, the materiality of physical preservation, right? You could put your hand, I can put my hand on the original negative of The Godfather. I can put my hand yeah. on it, right? Um, and digital, you must preserve within an infrastructure. You're talking about ones and zeros. You've got metadata around it, but you don't have that tangible material thing about it that's that's really tricky but we can't let that let us not care about like i don't know like the films of deborah granick right who would oh just like using or you know other great filmmakers that have used digital technology to tell these stories in amazing ways um that couldn't be told necessarily with cameras that were too bulky or film-based that you know that we really have to make sure that our attachment to materiality doesn't stop us from preserving the incredible films that people are making right now because they are making some amazing ones, you know? Yeah. So that's our, that's our job going forward is to make sure we, even though we can't touch them, we show them the same kind of love. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, on the music side of things, uh, digital technology sort of democratized production in a lot of ways, you know, so it made it available. To, and, the, and it has happened and is happening much more so with film now as well. Um, so it's become a medium that is more available to more people. And I think that's always a good thing. You know, it's just important to pay attention to all of the new people making these things. You know, the possibility that someone that's not, you know, doesn't have a $30 million budget could still make something wonderful and beautiful. Yeah, and the, the fact that you know new voices and people that weren't right. necessarily part of the industry before right. are making more and more things and making amazing things, um, bringing you know having that technology help them 
get into being a cinematographer for a feature film because they were making documentaries and they knew more about digital than anybody else. Right. You know, and now they're making this leap into uh, new ways of, of making films. All those things are, you know, uh, critical things to take into consideration that we're preserving. And so, yeah, making sure we keep those pixels alive. <laughs> That's a great way to end it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrea. Thanks for uh, for talking to us. Yeah. Thanks, Andrea. Sure, it's really pleasure. a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, see you soon. Mm-hmm.